Welcome to the Bicon Podcast. This will be our final podcast of 2020. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast Jakob Katz, the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. Jakob, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Richard, and it's an honor to be the last podcast of the year, and quite the year it's been. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, just for a little bit of background for people that don't know, as well as the uh, the editor of the of the paper, Jakob has previously served for about a decade as the paper's uh, um, defense and security uh, analyst. Uh, he also took some time out of journalism and served as a senior advisor to Naftali Bennett. And he's the author of three books, three excellent books, um, Israel and Iran, The Shadow War, Weapons Wizards, How Israel Became a Technical uh, Military Superpower, and most recently, Shadow Strike, Israel's Secret Mission in Eliminating Siran's Nuclear Power Project. Um, Yaakov, we're talking today, it's, the, it's Wednesday the 23rd of December, last night the Knesset uh, dispersed, so I want to focus a lot on the on the politics and the uh, the election campaign they're about to enter. And if we have time, talk a little bit about uh, one or two security issues uh, at the end. Um, if we can start, as I said, with the with the politics, um, we've seen the fadeaway historically generally centre parties, the centre parties, Kadima. Um, as we enter this campaign, do you think blue and white is now finished? I mean, that's a good question. Look, the polls are not favorable for blue and white. Uh, they're, they're down to single digits. And I think as the campaigns kick into higher gear, there's a very good chance that we'll see blue and white and Benny Gantz's party fade even more uh, out of the realm of what's realistic to get into the Knesset. You know, to some extent, Gantz has it coming, right? He, for three elections, the first one in April of 19, the second one in September of 19, the third one in March of 2020, he promised not to sit with Netanyahu and not to join a government led by Netanyahu. And then, as we all know, under the cover of COVID-19 and using that as the excuse, he split his party, blue and white, split with, with Yeshatid leader Yair Lapid, and in April signed a coalition agreement with Netanyahu and then formed a government with him in May. Um, he violated what his promise had been to his voters. And he went into a government with the prime minister who's standing trial for fraud, bribery, and breach of trust. So this was Gantz's breach of trust. He had breached the trust of his voters. And I think that Israelis have seen what, what has happened. They saw how this government was a total failure. It was a failure in fighting and combating coronavirus, which was the impetus for its establishment and why it was supposed to have been set up. It was supposed to steer Israel into calm waters, right, from the storm of that the virus had caused and the health crisis as well as the economic crisis, it didn't do that well. It has failed to, to, to operate in a unity government. We, we saw how things were hidden from one side, Netanyahu hiding the deal with the UAE and Bahrain from Gantz and Gantz doing his own stuff. Uh, it just wasn't working. And I think that there's a good chance he's going to fade. Uh, you know, will he try to jump ship, join with someone else, merge? Will people from his party try to maybe join the two rising stars on the right, Naftali Bennett and Gidon Saar? That's all possible. But but I wouldn't be surprised if Benny Gantz uh, is not going to be in the next Knesset. Hmm. Well, we'll come to some of those figures in a moment. But if we just turn our attention to the Likud, I mean, one, one of the kind of uh, the one... Uh, stable factors, I suppose, in Israeli politics has been the relative stability and strength of the of, of the Likud, both in the kind of in the three elections we saw over the last two years and in the current polling as well. How do you account for that uh, stability? Look, 
the, 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 it's a good question. And I think it's, it's probably the most important question of this election, which is still comes down to what are we really voting for, right? In other words, I mean, you know this, Richard, just as well as I do. There's no big policy disagreement anywhere, right? If you look even at the political map today, there's no real left wing in Israel that, that poses a serious uh, realistic chance of forming a government, right? Labor is completely gone almost. Yeshatid, led by Lapid, is not really a left-wing party. It's a center party. Some might even say center-right. Benny Gantz's party is definitely not a left-wing party. Uh, so you have merits, okay, but that's just a handful of seats. And you have the Arab party as well. But, but there's no real viable alternative on the left. So everything's really going to the right or to the center. And the, 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 without any policy questions, like, you know, peace with the Palestinians, that's not something that we're arguing about. Social reforms, that's not something we're arguing about. So, so what are we really voting for? And I think it still comes back to that now two-year-old question of, do I want Bibi or do I not want Bibi? Referring to Netanyahu. And that was what led us through three election campaigns. And when that is the issue at hand, do I favor Netanyahu or do I oppose Netanyahu? He's by nature going to get a lot of those votes, right? And he's still going to pull high and he's going to walk away with, you know, I, I saw in the polls that came out just last night as the Knesset was collapsing, he was uh, polling at 28, 27, 29. Um, that, that's going to stay, right? It's a, it's a drop from his mid-30s where he is right now, but he'll probably climb up a little, you know, as the campaign starts. He'll inch closer to 30. Maybe, maybe not, but I would I would think that he probably would because he manages to keep the whole question and the whole election focused on him, and and that's that that helps him. That's good for him. He doesn't want it to be about policy. He wants it to be about do people want him or do they not want him? Right. I mean, and in that sense, I mean, do you think that uh, Gideon Saar's entry um, can cut into any of that of the like the, of the loyal liquid supporters? Look, I think it definitely can. I mean, I, and I think we're already seeing that it is, right? Gideon Saar is polling at about 20 seats, you know, give or take a couple here, a couple there. Um, that, that Those are coming from the Likud, some of them. Those are coming, a lot of them, from blue and white. Uh, he is he, 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 he is the real Likudnik, Gideon Saar, right? He has a strong base in Likud. He has strong roots and foundations in Likud. So he could actually put up a big fight for Netanyahu and Likud, and he knows... Netanyahu really well. He was his cabinet secretary. He was his chairman of, his, of the coalition. Uh, he was a minister within uh, uh, Netanyahu's cabinet. He was in his inner circle of close confidants, right? It's not going to be that easy to write off Gideon Saar like, like Netanyahu has done in the past to Naftali Bennett, who's also uh, an opponent on the right, to say, you know, he's religious, radical, messianic, things like that. You can't say that about Gideon Saar. Gideon Saar is a true right winger. Right. You know, Netanyahu who talks about how he's the real right wing. Right. He voted in favor of disengagement in, in of the withdrawal from Gaza. Let's go back to 2005. Gideon Saar was in the Knesset then. He voted against it. Right. Uh, you know, so, so, so there's there's actual real right wing credentials that Gideon Saar can show uh, if there's going to be a battle on, on the right and say this is I actually represent the really coup. You don't. As I think that that'll put up a fight for Netanyahu. We actually saw some of Gideon Sars' tricks that played out uh, the, the, you know, two nights ago when, when there was that voting, there was an attempt to pass a bill that would delay again 
the, the, the deadline for passing a budget, which is the reason why this Knesset has collapsed, because you had to have passed a budget by December 23rd. And uh, they tried to pass the bill. Netanyahu thought he had a majority. It was one o'clock in the morning. And he didn't know that Gidon Saar behind the scenes was getting some of Benny Gantz's blue and white members and some other people from Likud, actually, to come in and, and vote down the bill. And, and Netanyahu lost that bill by a couple of votes. That was a big surprise. So that just shows Gidon Saar is shrewd. He's a, he's a smart politician. He's experienced. And he knows who his opponent is, Netanyahu. And significantly, he's made it quite clear that uh, if you're voting for Saar, then he's then, then he's not going to be joining a Netanyahu government. Um, and, and contrary to that, I suppose is uh, is Naftali Bennett, who has been more circumspect. I mean, even after being humiliated in this current government and being and being kept out, um, he's 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 refusing to commit whether he would or wouldn't join a Netanyahu government. Um, what, what do you expect him to say during this campaign? Where do you, how will he position himself as he's being squeezed by other right-wing rivals? Look, it's, it's a good question. I think that Bennett is trying to kind of, you know, play both sides of the field to some extent. Or, or as we say, there's a saying in Hebrew, you know, dance at two weddings at the same time, right? So I think what he's trying to do is to, on the one hand, say, look, yeah, there, there's, like we said before, there's that whole... Uh, uh, argument or question of, or do you want Netanyahu? Do you not want Netanyahu? And there's the camp that will, will only sit with Netanyahu, which includes, you know, obviously Likud and uh, the Haredi parties. And there's the camp that will never sit with Netanyahu, which includes Lapid and, uh, excuse me, and now Gidon Saar. And Naftali Bennett is saying, I could go either way, right? I don't want to commit myself to a personality. I'm committing myself to a vision and to a policy agenda. That sounds really nice, but I'm not sure how realistic and practical that is. So that's what he's been trying to push until now. Uh, I'm not sure it's helping him so much because we saw that once Gidon Saar announced his party, he shaved off within the ma matter of days, 10 seats from Bennett jumped over to Gidon Saar. So that showed that the, that rise, in Bennett had been 20 seats at one point, how a lot of those were people who were just temporarily parking their vote in his party, but weren't there to stay. So that that went to show just how uh, fragile or his his uh, his voting base was or appeared to be, even though it it seemed high. But the other thing is, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next day or so we hear an announcement from Bennett that I'm running for prime minister. Um, I'm running against Netanyahu. I want to lead Israel. Uh, and, and throwing his hat into the ring, kind of like at the bigger leagues, not just to be a party and a member of the coalition, but to actually try to lead a coalition, uh, that might give him a bump. I don't know if he'll come out and say, I'm not going to sit under any circumstances with Netanyahu. He still might want to fudge that and keep it vague of, of so he'd have multiple options the day after. Mm. Um, that will be interesting. And I suppose it will also kind of be fascinating to see who, who makes up his list as well, that uh, he's tried before to go for a more... Uh, heterogeneous uh, list as opposed to just being in the, the sector of the of the of the of the national religious i mean if we can turn to, for a second to the other natural partners of netanyahu historically the ultra orthodox they're also considered to have a closer personal relationship to gidon Saar. do you think they're going to remain loyal to the uh, to, to netanyahu or for a price could they also be peeled away by either Saar or in fact bennett Look, they could be peeled away because at the end of the day, the ultra-Orthodox parties are in it for what they can provide their voters with, right? So the budgets, the, the yeshivas, the infrastructure, 
um, that, that that's what they're out. That's what they're after, right? Ensuring that there's a draft bill into the IDF that's that's sympathetic to the needs of the ultra orthodox. So that, that that's their important issues, right? You know, like until today, Yaakov Litzman, who's the chairman of United Torah Judaism, he does he doesn't even sit in the security cabinet. Never has because it's not it's nothing. For, it doesn't interest him. He'll sit in the regular cabinet, but but he's not gonna he's not interested in talking about military operations or you know diplomatic relations and alliances. Um, they could go with Gidon Sar, but what you also have to keep in mind, Richard, is that their constituents are Likud supporters also, right? So they like Bibi, but they obviously still vote for the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredi parties. If, if you have a scenario of where uh, Gidon Sar and Naftali Bennett join together after an election and together make up 30 to 35 seats and the Likud is only 27, 28 seats, they could potentially make a stake that they should form the government. You know, who, who would be the prime minister? What for, let's say for argument's sake, it would be Gidon Sar. Could the ultra-Orthodox parties then join that? For sure. What would happen to Likud? It'd be interesting, but they could potentially, if they have 35 seats, let's say together, Bennett and, 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 and Gidon Sar, the Haredim together are another 15, give or take. That puts you already at 50. You bring in Yair Lapid or Avigdor Lieberman, and you're you're almost at 61, if not past 61. Likud stays on the outside. That's a that's a real viable option right now, and that's what has Netanyahu very 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 concerned. This is the first election where his main opponent is on the right, not on the center left or in the center. So it's going to be tougher to portray Gidon Sar as being weak. And being a leftist, he's not a leftist. He's he's more right wing than Netanyahu. Hmm. Um, absolutely. Um, if we just talk about the, the centre, the centre left for a moment. I mean, um, Yair Lapid perhaps deserves some credit, a for longevity as a central party for for sticking around this long. He's credited with having a, a good uh, um, structural uh, support across the uh, across the country, grassroots and yeah. uh, and a good network. Um, and he and he stayed to, to his commitment of not joining a Netanyahu government. Um, but we see him in the polls as well, not really breaking through that uh, that twenty seat mark. Um, can you see a way that he can break through, or does he have that uh, that glass ceiling? Look, he, he, I mean, potentially he could break through if everyone would align behind him and 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 understand that a, the gift to Netanyahu would be to establish new parties that would uh, compete on the center and center left, right? Uh, there's talk of the the, the long veteran, uh, successful, I might add, mayor of Tel Aviv, Ron Khuldai, a former Air Force pilot who's in his mid-70s, uh, which is the trend nowadays as we see in the United States. But he's uh, he's thinking of putting together a party. Uh, there's other talk of other parties on the left. Uh, but if, 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 if they start to again split that vote, they're giving Netanyahu a gift. That's what he wants to some extent, right? If they were to able to, to align together behind a single party or single leader, they could put up a fight. And let's not, I mean, listen, to Gantz's credit, that alliance between his party, which was called at the time the resilience, Israel Resilience, which he established in 2019, which he merged with Lapid's Yeshatid, prevented Netanyahu from forming a coalition in three elections, right? It was only after the third election, when Gantz split from Lapid, did Netanyahu finally have an election? But they were able to keep Netanyahu 
uh, from winning. So if, if, if they were to be able to, again, keep themselves together somehow on the, on the center, center left, they could potentially stop Netanyahu from forming a coalition. But if they start to split up the votes all over the place again with three, four or five parties, that's a gift to Netanyahu. And uh, unfortunately, as we've seen in our coalition system here in Israel, uh, we tend to do that more often than create stability with just bigger parties. Yeah. Um... Kind of during this election campaign, we're expecting uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's trial to begin sometime in, in February. Um, how much do you think this is going to affect the, the campaign? Can that be a game changer or have the voters kind of already priced in this, uh, this the, the trial? Right. Well, I mean, just to correct, his trial has begun, right? There's been, there's been the pre-testimony hearings that have already taken place. What, what's supposed to happen in February, so the prime minister is already on trial for bribery, fraud, and breach of trust, and he's about to stand for an election, which just sounds, you know, let's let that settle in again. We have a prime yeah. minister who's on trial for bribery, who's now running in an election, right? In, in some democracies, people might say that that's not right. But, but not in Israel. So um, his trial is moving into higher gear in February, you're right, when, when they're going to start to hear testimony. And that's going to be probably three to four days a week, full days of testimony from the morning till the evening. Um, that's the key part of the trial. And that's the part that Netanyahu is going to have to sit in that Jerusalem district courtroom as a defendant and listen to the testimonies of the state's witness state's witnesses and all those other people who are going to come and testify against him and accuse him of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. Uh, that, that's not good for him, right? Obviously, that's not good for him. Now, now you heard last night when, it's, when it was clear that there's no uh, way out of this election and the Knesset is going to fall, Netanyahu went on television. And one of the things that he said, he said three things that were, I, I would say were key. The first is, I brought the vaccines to Israel. I'm saving your lives, right? Obviously, you have to vote for me. Number two is I brought, I'm bringing peace to Israel. I'm saving you from Iran. So obviously, you have to vote for me. Those are his kind of two main points that he keeps on hammering away at. And the third is that there is a attempted rebellion or revolt or, by, or coup d'etat would be a better way to phrase it, by left-wing uh kind of state employees in the justice ministry, in the judicial system, who are trying to overthrow me, right? That is part of his narrative. And he's pushing that very hard because what he wants to do is get his voters, those, those 27, 28, 30 seats of voters to think that this whole trial is really an attempt by the left, by uh, bad deep state justice officials to bring to bring him down, and uh, and 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 that seems to be working for him, not badly. Now, what will happen, Richard, when he's actually sitting on the bench in that courtroom day on day in day out? Pictures are coming out, testimonies are coming out. That can't be good, but 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 it'll be interesting to see if he's able to desensitize the public completely from when that happens. That it won't have any impact now. How pervasive do you think that kind of the the, the deep state theories in a pejorative sense? Um, kind of res resonates with uh, with an Israeli public. I, look, I think you hear something over and over and over again, 
it, it, it starts to sink in and it starts to raise questions. And I think that there's some legitimate questions that have been raised about his, about his investigations, about the, 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 the whole way that the judicial system runs in this country. Uh, there, there are problems and there are reforms that are needed, but at the end of the day, and I, 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 I agree with you know, the fact that there's some reforms that need to happen, but when you have a prime minister, sitting prime minister who is every day consistently and constantly ripping away and trying to undermine the institutions that are key to this democracy, whether it's the police force, where he's refused to appoint a police commissioner for over two years, whether it's the state prosecutor's office, where he's refused to allow for the appointment of a state attorney for over a year, whether it's the attorney general who he regularly attacks, right? Or, or whether it's- he appointed. Who he himself appointed, who had been his cabinet secretary, right? I mean, this is, or even the justice system, the, 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 judici the, the judiciary, the court, where he has no problem attacking, and, and, and sending his, his cronies out to call for the Supreme Court to be demolished. I mean, th this is dangerous territory, right? And, and, and we, we have to be concerned with his attacks on the media, his attacks on freedom of speech, disinformation, misinformation. Uh, this is terrible for a democracy, but, and, I and it's effective. It's effective. We, by the way, we see how it's effective in America. You still have in the United States a, a huge number of people who believe that the elections were stolen from Donald Trump, right? I mean, is that good for the long-term sustainability of governance and democracy in the United States? Of course not, right? You're gonna have a president now who's gonna take office on January 20th, who a significant percentage of America does not believe should be the president of the United States. That, those are the things that are happening here. And, and, and we have to be very wary and cautious and vigilant to, to ensure that our democratic institutions survive this onslaught that they are facing. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the US. I mean, as you say, we've got kind of uh, less than a month to go before the inauguration. Um, President Trump has been pretty good um, to, uh, to Prime Minister Netanyahu, um, offering him various uh, rewards, so to speak, during the, during the last two years of election campaigns. I mean, elect taking that into account, but also generally the last month of, uh, of President Trump's time, do you anticipate uh, uh, President Trump doing anything else in his administration for the next uh, few weeks in the region? Look, they're trying, right? We know that they're trying. I mean, they're trying to get more countries to normalize relations with Israel. To their credit, they've done a fantastic job. I mean, you know, there's a lot of criticism of Donald Trump, a lot of legitimate criticism of Donald Trump. It's definitely, definitely is domestically in the United States, coronavirus, uh, the economy, the divisiveness, division, you know, the, just the standard of politics, whatever. But when you look at just here in the last few months with this wave of peace deals normalization, it's pretty incredible. And who would have thought that Trump could pull that off? So I think that Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz and Mike Pompeo, they're, they're continuing to try to uh, push forward more normalization deals. Indonesia is being spoken about. There's rumors of Pakistan. Uh, Oman is, is, is obviously a potential candidate. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we'll hear more uh, normalization deals that are happening before January 20th. It definitely would not surprise me. And on, a, on the security front vis-a-vis -vis Iran, um, do, you, do you anticipate anything there on the, from the US administration? Um, and just to add, I mean, we saw reports uh, from a few days 
quite rare, quite unique reports, I think, about uh, Israeli submarine crossing into the, the crossing the Suez um, towards the Persian Gulf. Um, what did you make of that report, and what do you think that we can expect uh, vis-a-vis Iran? Look, Israel definitely is very concerned about Iran and the possibility that the Iranians will try to do something to avenge the assassination attributed to Israel of their top nuclear scientist, Mohsen Frakhazideh, just a few weeks ago, right? And they've vowed to avenge his assassination. They've taken some serious hits in the last year, right? The year of 2020 started with Qasem Soleimani's death uh, and killing by the United States. There, there was now uh, the nuclear scientists. There have been constant, consistent strikes against Iranian infrastructure in Syria uh, by the Israeli Air Force. There have been cyber attacks against Iran and Iranian infrastructure and explosions. Go back to the summer, Richard. I mean, there were explosions all the time, uh, mysterious things happening. There was the attack in, in Natanz, their main enrichment facility, where the, the structure where they build the centrifuges blew up reportedly by, by someone who had planted a bomb inside, uh, they're, they're under attack, right? And, and that, that has reached a boiling point and they will want to avenge. You heard the, the remarks made by IDF Chief of Staff Aviv Kochabi just the other day where he vowed in very strong terms, a tough, mm. tough Israeli retaliation for an attack by Iran, whether in, against Israel or against an Israeli target overseas, that's coming from intelligence that they have of plans that Iran has already put into place to try to start rolling out to do something against Israel in response to these, this, this just terrible spate of attacks that they've been suffering. Uh, and that's where Kochavi's remarks come from. That's, where, that's how we should look at this uh, submarine that sailed apparently through the Suez Canal uh, which, by the way, you know, you're, they're not doing it submerged. They're doing it above water for everyone to see an Israeli submarine crossing the Suez, entering into the Persian Gulf, and then I would assume, you know, disappearing beneath the water there and somewhere into the Indian Ocean. Uh, but, but that is definitely, you know, meant to send a message. Israel's everywhere. We can project our power throughout the region. I think the Iranians already know that, right? Uh, they're not stupid. Israel has done this before also. It sent ships and vessels across the Suez and into the Persian Gulf before. Um, but, but definitely we're, we're, we're at a very tense moment. Uh, and there's also the rumors and reports of the possibility that Trump might try to do something before January 20th when he leaves office. That, that I'm more skeptical about, that we'll see outright military action by the United States against Iran. But, uh, but there's definitely a lot of coordination. On that note, uh, we, we saw the visit last week of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Miley, who came to Israel. Uh, his second visit in just a matter of months, I'm told that uh, Kohavi, the IDF chief of staff and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs in the United States, they hold regular VC calls, that there's a, there's a closer coordination, say, between Israel and the head of UCOM, the European command, as well as CENTCOM, uh, the central command. So there's a lot going on and a lot of coordination. I think a lot of it stems from the fact that the Iranians are, 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 are possibly going to do something and America and Israel want to make sure that they're on the same page. Absolutely. Yaakov, I think we'll leave it there. Um, but thank you very much indeed for your time today. Um, most appreciated. 
Thank and, you, Rich. I just pleasure. And I just and I just wanted to add to all our listeners to uh, for those who celebrate uh, a very merry Christmas, especially under the current circumstances, and a happy uh, new year to everyone. And we look forward to uh, to uh, reengaging early in 2021, which hopefully will be a better year for all of us. Thanks, Yakov. Okay. Thank you.